What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hey, everyone. We're going to talk with Dana Goldberg here in just one second. But first, if you're still looking for activities while self-quarantining, don't forget we produce four daily podcasts every week. That means a new Bob Seska show every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. But you're not going to see our Friday shows on Apple Podcasts, etc., Stitcher, and whatever. That's because our Friday After Party podcast, with all of its revealing discussions about sex, drugs, rock and roll, and politics, is only available through our Patreon page. So please help support this show by subscribing to our Friday After Party podcast for just $10 a month. You'll get the After Party shows every Friday, plus two postmortem shows every week, my Olbermann-style special comments, and you'll join one of the fastest-growing communities of podcast listeners around. That's bobseskashow.com, or just click the all-caps Patreon link beneath the logo at bobseska.com. And now, let the cartoons begin. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, April 1, 2020, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network, sexyliberal.com. Today, I'm going to be chatting with the great Dana Goldberg, one of my favorite stand-up comics, one of my favorite people altogether. You might know Dana from the Stephanie Miller Show and her podcast on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network called Out in Left Field. She's also the host of the forthcoming Rooftop Rants podcast. Follow her work at DanaGoldberg.com and on Twitter at DG Comedy. Meanwhile, if you dig this show, please support this podcast by subscribing to our bonus content at BobSeskaShow.com. Okay, Goldberg's here. Let's go. So I was on your show a few weeks ago. How soon, uh, Dana, do you think we'll get to a place where everyone will have been on everyone else's podcast? That's basically it. We're going to cross-pollinate until there's nothing else to do. It's going to be a giant incestuous podcast. (laughs) That's it. Yes. And I hate to think about the children of those podcasts. That would be uh, very, very (laughs) tragic. Those those trees have no branches. Those trees have zero branches. Exactly. So how are you handling all of this? That seems to be the question of the month, uh, more or less. Uh, you know, we're all kind of dealing with this in our own ways. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of different facets of this. Honestly, I probably had more to drink uh, than I normally do just to, you know, just to relax me at the end of the day. Maybe sure. a Xanax has found its way into my mouth, and I'm not saying that's a healthy way to go. <laughs> But, you know, you do what you got to do. Listen, professionally, this has been a shock to my system just with work. Mm. I I perform on stages and I, I, I raise millions of dollars for nonprofits around the country and everything has been shut down because we're not allowed to, you know, congregate in groups of more than one. Just one right now. So until that changes, my work's on hold until at least the end of May. Do you have your own nonprofit or something where you're uh, raising money for people? Do you have uh, (laughs) some some organization that you're working with as far as the uh, fundraising effort? Because that seems like a Herculean task. It's yeah, it's not just one. I probably work with a dozen nonprofits around the country. My main uh, organization I work with is the Human Rights Campaign, Mm. which is the largest LGBTQ organization in the in the country. They are her. And with this election, obviously, there's so much at stake and everything has just been put on hold and everyone's trying to figure out how to work virtually, which is just, 
I mean, craziness. I know that, you know, it's, it's second nature to some of us that have podcasts or doing radio, but when you're on stage and you're actually needing to be in front of people to do your job, it's difficult. It is difficult. So are they figuring out ways to use uh, Zoom? I guess Zoom is is probably doing huge numbers of downloads right, right now. Are they oh are you God. doing some sort of streaming service for it, or are you just putting right? it on hold? You wish you would have bought stock, right? It's one of those things where yeah. you're like, I wish I just would have known. God, yeah. Uh, I actually, because I am a subcontractor, I'm sort of outside of the planning stages. When they need me to come in and perform and host their galas, they get in mm. touch with me. And otherwise, I'm not really involved in the internal conversations because it's not my business. Um, Once they figure out what they're doing and how they can get back on track, they'll probably end up rescheduling some Saturday events during the week so that they can try and recoup some of the money that they would have made otherwise. And then after that, we just have to hope for the best. I mean, really, that's all any of us can do right now. Is there any uh, links that people can go to to uh, help support uh, uh, these organizations through this time? Yeah, you are a good man. Thank you for asking. There's the organizations that I think need the most right now, the Human Rights Campaign. Mm-hmm. You can go on uh, humanrightscampaign.org. Another organization that really needs us right now, it's called One Fair Wage. And what that does is it helps make a living wage for the 13 million tipped workers around the country yeah. because there's only seven states that actually have one. Right. So all of these tipped workers, we're, they're done now. They don't have, you know, they don't have uh, vacation time or uh, sick leave or any of that. And so right now, if you can donate to places like that that are helping these uh, people who are literally out of work and are having a hard time getting on unemployment because everything is so jammed up. Uh, the Trevor Project, GLAD, all of these organizations uh, are incredibly important. There's an organization that I work with called the Child Rescue Coalition that, on a shift of gears, is a very mainstream organization that helps to catch child predators on the dark web. Like all of these organizations uh, right now, Bob, are just needing help. So anyone that is still working, isn't furloughed, still has an extra dollar in their bank account, and they know that they can give it, now's the time. That's a big deal because a lot of kids are home from school a lot of kids don't have a whole lot to do and we're all relying heavily upon the internet i shudder to think of young children getting onto the internet for the first time maybe without the proper supervision and finding themselves into in horrible horrible situations right yeah, so if you are listening and this feels like it, it, it it's resonating in your heart, you can mm. go to childrescuecoalition.org. Mm. The moment their page comes up, there's a di- a giant button that says donate now. So any little thing helps. I actually know it's a nonprofit. They don't make any money off of this. They actually give the software that they have created free to all of the police, FBI in the United States and in 50 countries worldwide. Yeah, because what's horrifying is that at any given time, Bob, and I know I'm supposed to be a comedian. Everyone's like, "What the hell?" Uh, at any given <laughs> it's time, the times. Four- it's the times, Dana. <laughs> We're dealing there's with 14 this. million people trading yeah. child pornography on the dark web. 14 mm-hmm. million at any given Jesus. moment. Unfucking believable. So 85 percent of them are hands-on abusers. That's the fucking scary part. How do you end up becoming a fundraiser for all of these organizations? How do you end up in that? role? Was it something that grew out of uh, your stand-up or was it something that you just decided to put yourself out there as a potential spokesperson uh, for these organizations and they just said, oh, wow, she's really good at this. Maybe we should get her. Well, what happened was kind of serendipitous. I've been doing a lot of stand-up around the country for for the Human Rights Campaign and headlighting mm-hmm. comedy shows with Alec Mappa and um, a bunch of uh, Jim Jim, uh, Jim's name now is, is slipping <laughs> my Jim. mind. Trump's friend uh, Jim, right? Fine. He doesn't need the touting. I'm sure he has plenty of money. He's much more famous than I do. <laughs> Are you sure? Him. Yeah, no, uh, right. You're, you're just talking about the fake Jim that Donald Trump's always talking about, right? Absolutely. Jim, the guy that calls in and he just tells himself. He's, he's the, um, the unknown source. Uh, I... They had a live auctioneer fall out of a gala. The human rights campaign had a live auctioneer cancel at the last moment. Mm-hmm. So they called me and said, have you ever done this before? And I was like, uh, no, but let's give it a shot. And it was, um, their words, the best live auction they've ever had. And so these organizations have realized that when people are laughing, 
mm-hmm. and they're engaged and they're happy, they open their wallets. So they bring me in to host. I do about, you know, 10 minutes stand up either at the top of the show or right before I'm about to ask them to give me their child's college tuition. And it works. Um, people give more because I'm up there. It's just a formula that we've realized worked. And so it's a continual um, invitation for me year after year to go back and help them. And it's just given me another tool to help sort of change the world in the best way I can. Mm-hmm. And then in between all that, I still have all my stand-up shows and I work with a lesbian travel company called Olivia, which is not doing anything right now because we're not allowed to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So there's, I mean, the way this is affecting people goes layers and layers and layers that people don't even think about, whether it's the hospitality industry, the entertainment industry, all of my colleagues, all of my comedian friends have lost their stage. And, you know, people are like, well, do it online. Do you, basically doing it online without an audience has turned me into a one person podcaster. <laughs> There's no one laughing. I'm just talking right. to myself for an hour, hoping people are, you know, reacting at home. Yeah. And you know what? Our self-esteem, it's not exactly the highest to begin with. So now... <laughs> Now this is what we're doing with it. <laughs> yes, webcams, they're so flattering, aren't they? You just look at it. Oh, my God, do I look like a million bucks in that teeny tiny camera with horrible lighting. That's what I'm thinking. I, know. I, I just did the Stephanie Miller I show this know. morning via FaceTime. And I'm like, oh, my God. I looked okay <laughs> on my phone, but then I looked at the replay. And I was like, no. Ah! Good Lord, who the hell is that monster? It's oh, my God. You know what fun. you can do, Bob, just yeah. for yourself? Just don't wear any pants next time. They can't <laughs> see it, and then you'll be able to sit there the whole time enjoying the fact that you don't have any goddamn pants on, and no one else can tell. Well, who says I was wearing pants this morning? <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's, that's the fair. secret. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Kim would know. Kim would know if you're just walking around <laughs> Winnie the Poohing it all over the house. Well, she's completely in support with my pantsless appearances on the Stephanie Miller show. She's <laughs> totally on board nah, for some I'm, reason. I've seen you both. I think I'd be okay with both of you pantsless. Not to objectify you, but really, we're all going to die anyway, so now's the time. Well, you know, it seems to me, Dana, right now, we need people who are funny more than almost anyone else. Obviously, we need medical professionals. We need leadership. But people who are funny, who can help us to escape from this ongoing steamrolling crisis that just seems to be crushing everybody, whether we're being affected with it uh, medically or or psychologically. I think the psychological impact, especially of the isolation and so on, is going to get to uh, maybe to a breaking point. But I think we all are looking for ways to escape and the work that you do is is so important. Are you finding that through social media and so on, you're hearing from people who are saying, yes, please, more more funny, or do, are people shying away from the funny? Let's, oh, we have to be more serious now. Is that, what, what are you experiencing no. as far as the reaction yeah, goes? Yeah, not at all. I think you're right on in the beginning. Uh, yeah. People want more than anything now. They're research, They're searching for content. They're watching Netflix comedy specials. They're looking online. They're hoping people will do Facebook Lives. I think more than anyone, anything, people want to break from the news, that moron in the White House mm-hmm. who doesn't know what the fuck he's doing right now. I think that people are looking for a reprieve from that. So I think comedians right now, just like we are in any other time of crisis, people look to as an escape. So I think more than ever, you hit it right on that our jobs. It's it's interesting though, because normally we're able to do our jobs during that time. It's how we thrive. And, but when we're also affected and the way we do our jobs has been stripped from us, we need a little bit of a time to adjust and sort of put our oxygen masks on first, Mm -hmm. and then we can try and put our art out and to help other people. But it's been, it's been a challenge. Personally, for me, it's been a challenge. The first two weeks have been a bit of a tailspin and I'm sort of coming out of that fog and starting to create, I'm going to put out some videos called rooftop rants that are just with me going off, going off for five minutes on my rooftop about the idiocy that's going on in the world and the way people are handling it, mainly the administration. But, you know, just the things that people are frustrated about and they can't really articulate, I get to sort of do that. And I've always been able to do that. It's one of the reasons why I do stand up because I can connect the dots when other people can't but they go oh my god that's exactly what i was thinking that's exactly what i was feeling yeah there's something that's special about being in front of a live audience that you can't duplicate through a podcast you can't duplicate it sitting at home in front of a webcam for a facebook audience or whatever you need that immediate feedback is that one of the things you're missing the most uh, being connected that way with people 
Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting because a lot of comedians, um, you know, I, I like to think that I don't need attention. And in a normal situation, uh, a party, things like that, I'm an observer. Mm-hmm. But there's something about my personality that loves that feedback and wants that to be on that stage. And uh, the audience, I'm missing the most. Um, I didn't realize how much, you know, when we're caught up in the the hamster wheel of our jobs. And even though mine's very fun a lot of the time, and I get to make people laugh for a living. There's those days where you're like, shit, I just don't want to get on another airplane. And Bob, I would give anything right now to get on a fucking airplane and know that it's not going to make me sick. Yeah, you know what? I hate flying more than anything else, probably. And I feel like, well, boy, I'd love to go somewhere. (laughs) I'd love to get on an airplane. I don't care if it's for six hours. I'll get on an airplane. That'll be a nice change of pace. Is there anything that you're missing? I mean, work aside, uh, stand up aside. I always think of that that MASH episode. It was towards the end of the run, towards the end of the 11 seasons, where they're all standing around in the uh, OR and they're talking about all the things that they're going to do once the uh, war is over. You know, take a hot bubble bath. Yeah. And they're going to have, you know, Colonel Potter's going to make uh, corn on the cob right from the stalk and things like that. Are there things that are sort of on your wish list now that you're kind of looking forward to when all this is over? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think it's hysterical. All these New York Times articles and they're like, people are learning a new language and they're learning how to cook and they just, you know, crochet a new blanket for when we're allowed to give it to our loved ones. And I'm like, I just showered for the first time in five days. Like, where the fuck kind of, how are you getting the motivation to learn right now Rosetta Stone five times? Like, are you kidding me? But once this is done, I actually, it's funny because there's like a gift that I have during this time. I had a Hollywood production company that fell in love with me and they're very interested in a concept I have for a sitcom. Oh, great. And yes, I can make excuses all day long while I don't have time to write and I can't do this and I can't do that. And suddenly I have all the time in the world. So as soon as I can focus my brain and I've been able to do it a few hours a day. I've been working on that project because once this is all said and done, I would really love for this project to come to fruition. I think it's very timely and I think it will actually um, sort of break across pol- political boundaries and old, young, gay, straight, all of it. We'll all be able to see ourselves in this show. And I'm hoping that I can actually create that during this time. And maybe it'll be some collateral beauty from such a horrifying experience for us can you can you talk about what it is or is that uh top secret i cannot i have an nda oh, but um, yeah, yeah yeah and you know who knows how many people out there are looking for the next best thing so yeah any that's of right. a lot of listeners that, oh man listen, i just can't i that, can't afford i that can't afford ta- to lose it yeah that town is full of thieves too uh, I've, oh, I've, <laughs> I I've pitched I've pitched shows before Dana where a couple of years later suddenly I see a version of that show popping up on the same network that I pitched it to. They're shameless yep. about that crap. If Trump gets elected, we're going to have to learn how to deal with the next four years. And if oh, he doesn't yeah. get elected, this country needs to be able to heal. Yeah. And I think we have forgotten how to talk to each other because we're so reactive on both sides. Mm-hmm. And so I think the show will give us an opportunity to make those conversations go into the background and for us to remember the common humanity that actually connects us and we'll do that through sort of humor and and drama and so that's the point of the show well so you're clearly thinking in terms of the possibility of re-election which is i'm doing the exact same thing what am i going to do how am i going to react if on november 4th we wake up and it's four more years of donald trump it's tragic and heartbreaking and soul crushing literally to imagine it but i think at some point we all have to figure out you know if that eventuality happens how we're going to handle it how do you think you're going to uh to deal with something that is that utterly tragic and in in many ways changing the face of the entire nation basically Uh, you know bob i i don't want to be that voice that doesn't have hope i still do Mm -hmm. it's still underlying in there um I'm really worried that this coronavirus issue has sort of taken, and listen, I think he's the front runner, Joe Biden out of the um, external dialogue offline. All we're seeing is Trump and his ridiculous press conferences. All we're seeing is the coronavirus. And I feel like this has really put a wrench in the election that was starting to get some momentum where I was feeling some hope that maybe Joe was going to be able to take this guy out of office, that Mm -hmm. we'd be able to rally behind. Um, And if you're a a Bernie Sanders guy, that's fine. But if we were to rally behind, you know, our nominee 
and actually get him out because I know the country was fired up, but I think everyone's in shock right now. Yep. Um, and they're trying to basically keep their head above water and stay afloat. So the, even though the election is very important, suddenly it's not in the forefront of their mind. They don't know how they're going to pay their next car payment or pay rent or anything like that. So my hope my hope is, God forbid, if he does get reelected and listen, we all know that there's external in interference with that. I mean, for God's sake, during his press conferences, his two buddies that he's talking to are the crown prince of Saudi and the um, you know murderous dictator Putin. So yeah. these are the two yeah. guys he's looking to for information on the coronavirus. So we clearly know where his BFFs are. Mm-hmm. I would not be surprised at all if there was um, you know more Russian interference in the 2020 election. Yeah. That being said, I don't. I wish I had an answer of how we'll get through four more years of this. It's terrifying, and I think it's going to damage our country irreparably in some ways, and not to mention our planet. Um, If there's a miracle and he gets out, and that would be fantastic, there is going to be a period of time where um, his, his base is going to be dangerous. And I have no doubt about that. So I think we, after that happens, have definitely have to kind of, figure out how we're going to heal from this. And it's going to take an incredible leader to be able to bring us together in the best way possible. I hope that person's out there. I think that person was a female. I think she's no longer in the election. And so I have to vote for someone that wouldn't have been my first choice, but you damn well better believe I will vote for whoever gets the democratic nomination period. Okay, we'll get back to our conversation with Dana here in just one second. But first, I'm sure you've seen or heard about Plexiderm, the TV commercials, our commercials here on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. If you don't know already, Plexiderm is backed by clinical studies to visibly eliminate your wrinkles, crow's feet, and other telltale signs of aging in just a matter of minutes. It's kind of amazing. Most serums like this take months and months and months to actually work and sometimes they don't even work. All that sacrifice going for nothing. But Plexiderm works in just 10 minutes. In fact, what hooked me on Plexiderm was the 10-minute challenge. They sent me some Plexiderm here. I tried it. I stared at myself in the mirror. And in just about 10 minutes, all those fine lines around my 48-year-old eyeballs vanished, gone, disappeared. It's an amazing thing. Go to triplexiderm.com, see the before and after photos for yourself, and use my code VOICES for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. You can also get this offer by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code VOICES at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com. You'll be glad you did. The Bob Seska Show. Who do you think the vice presidential nominee is going to be with Joe Biden? Um, back on the hopeful side of things. Uh, because he's already yeah, made it clear no, that, yeah, it's one of the people who's been on the presidential stage already. So who do you think it's going to be? You know, who do I think it's going to be? Who would I love for it to be? It's yeah, so either hard. one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, listen, I think uh, Kamal Harris and Stacey Abrams are both incredible candidates. And to be honest with you, I also think Tammy Duckworth would be an incredible vice president. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much people are putting weight on that. You know, she's from the Midwest. She's a veteran. Uh, she's a woman of color. She's brilliant. Uh, you know, Kamala, I just know would be a great VP. I don't know if she wants that position or if she'd be a better attorney general. And then hopefully eventually going to the Supreme Court, which is where I would love to see her one day. You know, those are there's so many combinations that it could be. I really do hope Joe picks a woman of color. I think that, you know, the black women in this country are driving the vote. They know what's going on. And when they believe in something and they feel like they are represented, they get out and they get out in numbers that are unmatched within any community. And uh, so I I know that Joe is very popular, at least I understand from you know speaking with my my friends and colleagues within the African American community. Joe's very popular, regardless. But I do think that him taking that for granted would be a mistake. Yeah. And I would love to see just in general. I think it's time. Yeah. If a female's not going to be president this time around, I would love to see a woman of color as VP in that power position uh, because it's just time. It's mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And already he's made it perfectly clear that he's going to choose a woman and probably someone who was standing on stage with him at some point in one of these debates or many of these debates, as the case may be. Yeah. So uh, but Tammy Duckworth, I think, is a 
remarkably fascinating choice because she brings a lot to the table, including the fact not only being a military veteran, not only being a wounded warrior, but also the fact that she's already got executive branch experience. I mean, she was the secretary of veterans affairs under uh, Barack Obama. So she's already been ensconced in the Obama administration. She certainly has the endorsement of Obama himself, uh, at least up to that level. And so uh, it it seems to me as if, if you look at it from that perspective, Joe Biden, he's got an easy choice uh, ahead of him, Uh, especially with uh, one of maybe the top three people that you you mentioned between Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams, Tammy Duckworth. I would throw in Elizabeth Warren in there as a possibility, too, because she brings the progressive left in. Uh, So, yeah, lots of interesting choices there to be had. But my concern Going back to Donald Trump and all of this is that he's already started to pat himself on the back for his performance in this crisis. And the press is going to or certain members of the press are going to uncritically repeat those things that he said framed as news. And then people are going to accept that that's going to rattle around in the echo chamber. And that's how Donald Trump gets reelected. Don't you think? Because we're back in that situation again, like 2016 where, Oh, he's so crazy. We should show all the crazy because then people won't vote for him. But it didn't work out that way. Did it? Right now. I agree with you completely, Bob. I think the media is a huge part of this problem. And, um, you know, it's not all of them, but there's definitely these sensational yellow journalists that mm-hmm. really people are taking as as, you know, truth like Fox. Yeah. Fox News isn't a news organization. It's an entertainment network. And unfortunately, that has been lost to the years. You know, they have a couple of pundits on there that every once in a while actually speak some truth and hold Donald Trump to the fire. But then you have idiots like Laura Ingram and all these other people that they are selling this to the public and the public, his base is believing it as scripture. That's the horrifying part. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, you know, we're not, he's not, we're not going to lose any of us. I'm just hoping that through this process and people, oh God, I hate that. It takes people to lose their job and their livelihood to think that, you know, maybe this guy isn't the best leader, <laughs> but right. if that's the collateral beauty that comes out of this, like, I guess we'll take it. I don't Mm. know how else to look at it, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, the bar is just so low for his performance. Oh, my God. The bar is six feet under. Oh, God, At least it's staying six feet away. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. At this point, we don't have to touch the bar. Well, and here's a great example. I'm sure you're getting ready to celebrate 200,000 deaths with Donald Trump, right? When he, you know, he's done a very good job if we hit uh, 200,000 deaths. Uh, because of this virus. I already have my very good job party supplies on back order from Amazon. I don't know if you've gotten a jump start on that yet, too, but I'm all set. I mean, he's, it's unbelievable. He did the same thing with Puerto Rico. Yep. You know, he touted the amount of deaths, and he did it way before the numbers were even out, but he was like, look, it could have been much worse. And you know what? No, it couldn't have. I don't even think some of those people actually have u- utilities yet, and those are American citizens. Like, I just have no love, respect, like anything for this guy. I've never hated anyone, but the disdain for this man Mm -hmm. is really above and beyond for me, just because I think he's such a horrible human being. And I think he's a sociopath. He has no feeling. He has absolutely no empathic feeling for anything that's going on outside of his own bubble. To be able to sit there and actually be like, well, you know, some people are going to live and some are going to die. We'll see what happens. (laughs) Right. Yeah. The, (laughs) the We'll see what happens. Part of that is probably the most infuriating part because it's like, yes, we'll wait and see what happens on the next episode of the Trump show, which is just uh, it's so insulting and so wrong on so many levels. But I'm sure you're impressed how for about three seconds yesterday, Trump pretended to be somber and I underscore pretended to be uh that was impressive wasn't it oh god and of course the media is going to be like look how presidential he was he had a human emotion uh you know the thing is is i wouldn't be surprised if he's feeling something from somewhere else it's the economy that's making him sad it's the it's the fact that he might lose voters because two hundred thousand people a lot of them are going to be the elderly generation because they can't fight this off like those are the things that i can't even give him an ounce of credit because i think it comes from a place of darkness every Mm -hmm. single thing that he shows comes from a place of darkness if he thought dressing up like the san diego chicken or something like that would help him sell his bullshit he would absolutely (laughs) do that and that was 
is calculation. <laughs> this doesn't come from a place of emotion at all. Donald Trump, everything he says is in service of selling his bullshit on a stick. That's what he exactly. does. And if that means pretending to be somber, momentarily pretending to be presidential, that's why it's happening. It's not suddenly, I like what this one reporter from Bloomberg said, uh, Donald Trump clearly has altered his thinking on all of this. I say, how the hell do you know what Donald Trump is thinking? All the evidence shows that one, he doesn't do a lot of thinking. Two, (laughs) this is all a show to sell the con. This is a character that he thinks he is playing and that's the extent of it. It doesn't go any deeper than that, does it? No, it no. doesn't. No. Are you kidding me? If he cared about this general, if he cared about this country, he would not have put Mike Pence in charge of the coronavirus. Right. A man who had completely botched the AIDS epidemic in Indiana. He would have put someone who knew what the hell they were doing instead of a washed up talk show host that somehow became vice president of the United States. <laughs> he does not care. No, he absolutely does not. And, and again, I'm deeply concerned that the press is going to help reelect him. Ironically, they're going to help reelect him with their underpants firmly wedgied up their butt cracks thanks to Donald Trump. That's the great irony in all of this. The people who are going to be the the training wheels on his re-election bicycle are the ones that he hates the most and he will never give them any credit. He will never love them in return. But they're just going to keep uncritically printing the nonsense that he uh, blurts out during these daily Trump. They're going to keep showing these things, first of all. And then the reporting on it is just going to be more more of what we've seen, which is Trump says this. Well, is it true or not? Well, I don't know. That's right, for exactly. you to decide. It's just the, it's just the clickbait. It's just the click, get clickbait captions that you see. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm telling everyone, turn him off. You know, Andrew Cuomo uh, has been giving incredible press conferences. And listen, I'm in California, but listening mm-hmm. to him, I feel like he knows what he's doing over in New York, or at least he's trying my heart goes out to his brother, Chris, uh, you know, yeah. that apparently tested positive. There's, you know, there's bigger things and there's people out there that are speaking more truth and making more sense and not instilling fear in the general public. And that's not even fear. It's just indifference, which is almost worse. The president doesn't care. He mm-hmm. only wants to worry about lining his own pockets and, you know, the economy, if that's his biggest worry. Listen, apparently Greg Abbott thinks it's fine to let old people die so that their grandchildren can walk their, watch their stocks go back up. These no, people are Jesus. horrifying human beings. Yeah, they really, really are. And speaking of family, how's your family doing in all of this? Uh, your mom? Oh, she, yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking about She's in Albuquerque. For those of you that are listening to me on Stephanie Miller, you know that uh, my mom is lovely and she's in Albuquerque. Yeah. It scares me. My mom's a very independent woman. She still wants to go out of the house and, and not do the normal things, but go to the grocery store and not lose her independence. And I support that. But I also have a very, very Jewish mother who is like <laughs> sanitizing the bottom of her shoes before she comes in the house and wiping down her own toilet seat and her handle, even though she's the only one in her bathroom. Like, yeah. Those are the things that I know she's taking extra precautions. Um, I have a lovely sister and brother that seem to be doing well on a physical level. My, my sister's a teacher. Mm-hmm. She teaches at a, at a private school in Albuquerque and is one of the best teachers that they've ever had there. She's a math teacher, and this has really thrown her for a loop. She misses her students. She now has to learn how to teach math over a computer where people Jeez. and children's learning modalities are all very different. So mm-hmm. it's sort of taken away that creativity that it you know, that individual attention teachers can give their students has been taken away. They're just talking to them through a computer. And so I know that's also been very hard for her on a personal level. And so we chat from time to time. Um, you you just do what you can to support the people you love and listen. Yeah, yeah. I've always been the person people come to to make them feel better. So I have to be very careful during <laughs> this time to also give myself the space and time I need to give myself some some love, if you will, so that I don't burn myself out taking yeah. care of everyone else and your mom raised you by herself right uh was she in that process was she an influence on your sense of humor was she an influence on your comedy <laughs> my mom is one of the most my mom is the funniest person in the room but doesn't know it <laughs> and my dad who has since passed thought he was the funniest person in the room and mm-hmm. i think i got a nice combination of the two of them like my mom says things that will make me laugh until i cry and she doesn't even realize she says them until they sort of reverberate in her own head and she hears them wow <laughs> but we will play my mom 
Uh, my mom and I will play 500 rummy tournaments when I go home and visit her and just have a glass of wine. And I mean, laugh our asses off. And she tells me what a horrible child I am when I beat her. And, you know, many curse words come out of our mouth. We have such a close bond and a loving bond. Yeah. Um, it is very, uh, it's very hard to be away from her at this time. For I can sure. imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're all dealing with that on, on some level. And it's especially hard with our older parents because, you know, you don't know how much time they've got left. And I hate to be kind of dark that way, but that's the thing that I keep thinking about. I mean, my dad's in his eighties, my mom's in her seventies. Um, who knows? I, I mean, I moved back to the East coast specifically to be able to spend more time with my family. And, uh, and, yeah. and yet here we, You know, my friend said something and I almost befriended her because it's such a dark thought, but it's also very sobering is that, yeah, my mom's in her 70s. And let's say I go home once a year to visit her between now and 100. Mm -hmm. Uh, That means I only see my mom 30 more times before the end of her life. Like that is a sobering. Yeah. I literally was like, we can't be friends anymore. But then I was, you know, because she was just sharing something with me. But it's one of those things where I was like, holy shit. When did you lose your dad? My dad passed away in 2008. So my mom and dad had divorced when I was four. And um, I, I lived I with my mom. She raised us. Oh, which is the question you actually asked me. Uh, <laughs> that We took a tangent to. Jesus Christ. I mean, who really knows what day it is anymore? I know. Um, my mom raised uh, the three of us on her own, yes as a single parent and work three part-time jobs, making Mm -hmm. sure we had everything we needed. And, you know, we definitely have our stuff, but we are a close family. We love each other. Uh, I think anyone who is brought into my family, like someone I date or marry is going to be very lucky to have them as their in-laws. But, you know, we have our stuff. We have our stuff. So my dad passed away in 2008. They Mm -hmm. had been divorced for 28 years by then, I think. So, um, he had lived in Vegas and we were in touch and had been in each other's lives, but he was gone for a big part of my childhood, about 16 years. Yeah. I didn't really hear from him or see him. Uh, hmm. He had remarried. So when uh, he and my stepmother divorced, he decided he wanted to be back in our lives. And my mom welcomed to him to have a relationship with us, even though they wouldn't have any sort of real relationship. So I did have some time with him before that, but um, he, he had a massive stroke in 2018. Um, and recovered from the first one. Mm. And it was very interesting. I was opening up for David Brenner um, in Aspen. I was invited to a comedy festival. And David was so much like my dad. It was very, very strange wow. uh, to be around him, but also quite comforting. And um, during that time, my dad was in the hospital in Vegas. And after I had worked with David, you know, he said, do you want me to go visit your father? And I said, what? And he goes, I'll be, I'm, you know, I can stop by and say hi. I said, David. My dad right now is in a mental hospital because he's had a stroke and they think he's lost his mental cognition. If you walk in and they tell him David Brenner's here to visit him, it's probably going to put him right over the <laughs> right over the edge. Oh God! But the, how sweet of David Brenner to to offer to right? do that. That's very nice of him. That's yeah. Not, yeah, that not, was the loss. That was the loss to the comedy world when David died. Um, yeah. You know, he was he was a he was a good man, a really good man, but. About, let's see, that was uh, Valentine's Day of 2008, and around mm. March of 2008, he had another massive stroke, and he didn't survive that one, so. Oh, no, no. Um, You know, the, the comedy of it, though, you know, everything that happens in a comedian's life, I, I got two calls that day. One was from the coroner's office, and one was from my brother, and um, I, I won't talk about the one from my brother, but the coroner, you know, just said, give me a call back, and he was still mm. in Vegas when he died, and yeah. the coroner said, you know, you've got... your dad, you know, are you related to him, this man? And I said, yes, it's my father. And they told me what had happened. And then they said, you know, you've got a couple of days to decide what to do um, with him. And he didn't have a will. And I called my sister and my mom. And I said, listen, apparently whatever happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas because we have to get his body out in 48 hours. (laughs) You know, it's, it's interesting. Your mom was clearly magnanimous about you developing a relationship with your dad after 16 years or so. Did she display the same level of magnanimity when it came to having two of her three children uh, turn out to be gay? Was that was she cool about that or were there fireworks? It sounds like everything turned out just fine. Everything turned out great. My mom was raised in Brooklyn, New York. Her very best friend growing up was a lesbian. So when I came out, you know, my brother came out first. He was six years older than I was. Uh And um, he, than I am. He's still six years older than I am. (laughs) I really tell you this whole virus. I don't know what's going on. 
Um, he's still six years older than I am. Yeah. He came out first, and my mother was very accepting. Mm-hmm. And then when I came out, also very accepting. Um, I think she wasn't surprised by my brother, but she just thought I was athletic. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> um, I both. Yeah. Uh, Are you athletic? Very athletic. I played soccer uh, my entire life, and uh, you know, I did shot put and discus in high school because I'm gay and I have a degree <laughs> in physical education because I'm from New Mexico and I'm a lesbian and it's the law there that you actually have to get a degree in physical education. <laughs> I mean, I feel like right now I'm the poster child for dykeness out there if anyone's actually listening to this. I drove a pickup truck for 17 years. The only thing I was missing was a mullet. I never had a mullet. Oh, you, and you didn't open up for the Indigo Girls at any point or anything like that, right? No, but you know what? I would have died to open up for the Indigo Girls. <laughs> Hell, I'm not a lesbian. I would have died to open up for the Indigo Girls. Uh, when did you realize, Dana, that you could make people laugh uh, and then uh, make a career out of it? Was there some sort of epiphany moment where you said, oh, my God, these adults are laughing at what I'm saying here in a good way. Maybe I want to do more of this. When did that When did that happen for you? So when I, this is funny, my kindergarten teacher told my mother I was the funniest five-year-old she'd ever met. And I'm really not sure who my competition was or what the bar (laughs) is on that. But apparently this happened really young. Yeah. And I remember in fourth grade, I had a... I had a parent-teacher conference with one of my favorite teachers because I was making, I was disrupting the class because I was making her laugh so hard that she had to turn around so the other students couldn't see her, and then she had to turn back around and basically scold me for interrupting the class. (laughs) There was a parent-teacher conference where the teacher looked at me and my mom looked at me and said, what's the problem? And I looked at my teacher and said, I don't like the way you teach. And she said, what? I said, yeah. She said, I don't like the way you teach. She said, do you think you could do a better job? And I said, oh, yes, I do. <laughs> I was nine years old, Bob. Oh I was God. nine <laughs> years old. And I did end up getting a degree in education, which is kind of funny. But um, I remember just using humor as a way to get through very uncomfortable situations when I was younger. And then even through college, like in my cadaver labs. I mean, I joke after joke as I'm trying to dissect a dead body, but, you know, sitting in there so uncomfortable, wanting to vomit. I need to get out of the room. And they're like, you know, can you close the door behind you? And I'm like, why? Like, are you you worried? They're they're dead. Are you worried about someone seeing them naked? This is insane. Um, (laughs) How did you I thought uh, you were in education. How did you end up, uh, you know, dealing with cadavers? Was it, was it physical some... education, anatomy oh, and physiology? I see, I see. Everyone thinks a phys ed degree is really easy to get. It's not. I mean, anatomy, physiology, child development, um, all the cognition of how the body works, kinesiology, like everyone that's like, oh, she's a gym teacher. And I know there's some listeners on Stephanie Miller that joke about it, but it's actually a really difficult degree <laughs> to get because you do have to take some medical classes and biology classes. So you know how people's bodies work. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, I want to be in a yeah. class where we're dissecting cadavers and there's someone as funny as you are at the next <laughs> cadaver. I can only imagine the jokes being cracked. Did you find that you were just so tempted to just let loose with an entire chunk of like cadaver jokes and things like that as you're cutting into this <laughs> poor body? Oh, of course. I have a hard time let, not letting loose in every uncomfortable situation I'm, I'm sure. at. I've just learned as I've gotten older when to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> Um, but before that in high school, what happened for me is I was, when I was younger, I was listening to tapes of like Stephen uh, Wright and Robin Williams and all of the people from the comic relief days. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize during that time is that I was learning and I was studying. So when I was a senior in high school and there was my high school talent show, I decided that I was going to do a 10 minute stand up routine and I won, I won wow. the talent show. And then when I, that was when I was 17, 18, but I didn't touch stage for eight more years until I was 26. Um, I went through college and I I had stage fright and some public speaking fears. And so I didn't really go near it. And then this is actually a a heartfelt story, but maybe a a hopeful story for people out there as well. But uh, when I was 26, I started dating someone and she was a pilot in the military. She was one of the second females to ever fly an MC-130. Wow. And her dream to be a pilot happened because she wanted to be that. So she, the military was the best way. Mm-hmm. So when I was talking about my dreams and how I wanted to do stand up, she's like, go audition. And there was a show in Albuquerque called Funny Lesbians for a Change. And it used to raise higher education scholarships for women in the community. She's like, just go audition. I'll go with you. 
she went with me. I walked in five minutes after the audition closed and they wouldn't let me audition. They said, you have to come back and wait till the next year. Mm-hmm. During this year, she and I stopped dating. And this is the hard part of the story. She was on a military exercise in Puerto Rico with seven Americans and three Puerto Ricans and their plane hit a mountain and the entire crew was killed. Oh, Everyone on no. board was killed. That's horrible. Yeah. So it was one of those moments in life after I got through the shock of what had happened. Mm-hmm. She inspired me to chase my dreams because of who she was and what she did. And it was one of those wake up moments of like, don't wait any longer. So I went and auditioned the next year. Obviously she was gone, couldn't be there. And she had moved since then anyway. But, um, and they gave me a seven minute set after my audition, they let me in the show and they let me go second. And they gave me a seven minute set in front of 650 people in a sold out theater in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I hit my first big joke, Bob, and I heard the most deafening laughter I had ever heard in my wow. life. And I felt like I could fly. Unbelievable. And that was, that was it. That was it from that day to now it's been challenging and there's been hard times, but I tell you what, when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing in life, doors open up for you and it's not painful and it's not a struggle. And this is how I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And so that's how everything started. Do you still find that her memory, her inspiration continues to drive your ambition, drive your motivation? Uh, Do you find that that's still energizing you in some way? You know what's funny? Um, I know she's with me when I perform, and I think about mm-hmm. that when I go on stage, that she's one of the reasons why all this has happened. Wow. Um, I actually think about her more because we're all fallible, fallible people. I think about her more when I'm about to do something really fucking stupid that I know she's looking down at me yeah. and going, what are you doing? Don't do that. Right, do right. That. Yeah, yeah. So and that's especially... actually the voice I hear in my head of I want to make her proud mm-hmm. because I know she would have been so proud of me, but it sort of transcends the comedy world into just I know I have an angel up there looking down on me. And so sometimes when you have that devil and your angel and you're like, which direction do I go? I don't always pick the right direction, yeah. but more often than not, I hear her voice in my head of just like do the right thing. So such a tragedy turning into something that is positive and inspirational. That boy, that is a that's that's a hell of a story. That's a hell of a of an inspiration in and of itself. I'm so happy that you were able to use that and turn her memory into something positive rather than something that is uh, that that you kind of feel like is dragging you down. Absolutely, uh, yeah. You know, I was. It's God. It's been. I hate to age myself on here, but it's been, you know, over 14 years. Mm-hmm. So it's in my mind. And um, she was and is, I'm sure, somewhere out there, one of the most wonderful humans I ever had a pleasure of loving and to love me. And so I can't think of any possible way other than take her memory and to help me, you know, to use it to sort of fuel me into my career. And Honestly, everywhere I'm at, sitting here talking to you, everything that has brought me to where I'm at today, I can look back and link to her belief in me and her encouragement of just go audition. And that's that's what it was. So, yeah, this is for all the people that I bring joy, you're welcome. And for anyone that's like, oh, I hate her comedy because I'm a Republican, you can blame her. It's her fault. Do you think that if she hadn't been killed, that you two would maybe still be together at this point? Was she kind of, were you both thinking in terms of this relationship being the one? Uh, was that uh, oh, where you were at the time? Sweet question. Yeah. No, I don't, you know, I, I don't think that's the case. I think that my life would have taken me here eventually where I needed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was such a sweet love. I can't believe I'm sharing so much personal with you and all of the thousands of people that listen, but <laughs> I know that this resonates with some people out there. So yeah, yeah. I was her first mm-hmm. and to be able to have that experience for her, um, I think was uh, a wonderfully loving and kind experience for her. And then for what she, the gift that she gave me is immeasurable. Mm-hmm. And so I don't ever look back and think that she was my one true love that I lost or anything like that. She really opened up my heart and my eyes and some of the experiences with her while she was still alive definitely made me think about my decisions and the way I speak to people. I mean, I've always been a kind person, but mm-hmm. when you're in your twenties, we don't always make the best decisions. Oh yeah. 
And so to have someone be able to articulate what that decision or what that word or what that did to them in a way that was so safe and loving made me go, oh, I can think about that next time that's going to happen and I can be different. Mm -hmm. I, I can choose to be different. That's right. Um, she was my, 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 my sadness for her is the loss of, you know, she had a sister and her mom. I've never seen such pain mm -hmm. as being a mother who has lost a child no, at no. a young age. I have never seen that. And I hope I never have to know that. And no, no one I love and care for ever has to know that pain. That's where my sadness comes from is like, I'm sure her family misses her far and beyond anything I can ever imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And we all, of course, posthumously thank her for her service too. That's uh, that oh, goes without saying. Yes. Yes. And, yes. You know, um, yeah. a week or two ago, I, I think I heard you mention to uh, Stephanie Miller on her show in passing that uh, something about the sexual harassment that uh, is in the stand-up world, certainly everywhere, but particular to the, uh, to the stand-up world. What was it like for you, especially from the perspective of being an out lesbian, what was that? Uh, what was that experience like for you? It's so interesting, Bob. I was just talking about this with someone really near and dear to me. That my experience um, is a little bit different than I think some of my heterosexual colleagues. Um, also, the way I've built my career, I didn't spend a tremendous amount of time in the comedy clubs, mm -hmm. mainly because I didn't like the environment. It was very homophobic, very transphobic. Um, the alcohol, the the you know, the environment, the toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. And I started 14 years ago. So there's been a lot more female comics that have really broken through and have taken over some power positions in this field. But back in that day, you know, it's three guys on a bill, maybe a girl. And I don't know if a lot of people know this, but when you're a road comic and you go to a comedy club, some comedy clubs give you housing, but it's a condo that everyone has to share. Mm -hmm. And so these female comics are put in a situation where they're now sharing a place with these sometimes really disgusting dudes. And don't get me wrong. There's a lot of good men out there and a lot of good male comics. Yeah. But when you're in that sort of environment, it's sort of a breeding ground for toxic, toxic masculinity. Sure. So um, from my experience, I think what I've had to deal with is having to follow male comics that shock the audience into laughter through low hanging jokes about, you know, fag this or tranny that, or mm. almost, you know, those sort of things where the audience laughs out of discomfort. And then a female comic has to follow and clean up his mess. Yeah. And that is, a, that's what's hard. And that's a problem. Um, I have been lucky enough and I feel fortunate enough that I have never been in a uncomfortable or dangerous position with a male comedian, but I know a lot of, women who have. And so I sort of see it from the outside in mm -hmm. um, rather than knock on wood, never having to experience that myself. It's more of a peripheral discomfort and having to witness it than actually experiencing it. Um, but I think uh, through the years, obviously with the YouTube movement, but um, you know, women speaking up. And I also think the importance of men speaking up during this is not more important, but equally as important is to not stay silent. And if you see one of your buddies or you hear one of your buddies disparaging a female comic or a female at all in front of you, instead of laughing along, like it's funny, just being like, dude, not cool. Like, don't, don't talk like that in front of me. It's not acceptable. What have you. One of the things that I've experienced and I was sharing this with some friends is that because I'm gay, I don't necessarily, I'm not on the receiving end of the inappropriate comments. Mm -hmm. They want me to join them. They see me as one of the guys. And so when they talk about girls in front of me, they think because we date the same gender that I'm just going to be on board with this bullshit. <laughs> and I'm not. Yeah. So it's one of the differences that people need to hear is all guys aren't bad just because they like women. And liking women isn't what makes you has the propensity to be a horrible human being because otherwise a lot of lesbians out there would also have the propensity to mistreat women. Right. It's really very specific to the person and how you view other humans and respect other people's boundaries. It's mm. not necessarily just because of who you date because there's men out there that have been sexually harassed and raped as well by yeah. either other men or women. So it can go both ways, but yeah, in the in the comedy world, because there's so much alcohol in the clubs, there's a lot of drugs going around the clubs. It's just not a healthy environment. So I made a decision to stay out of them. I do a lot more theater theater shows. I'll work in a club or get a black box theater and you know rent out the space. 
And a lot of the times in comedy clubs, the opening and middle comics, they don't make very much money anyway. So now you're putting these environments where you have to put up with this bullshit because you want the paycheck or you want to get that headlining spot. And sometimes the the guys are in control of whether or not that happens. It's yeah. a horrifying situation to be in, but I'm grateful that I've never actually been in it. Yeah, and along those lines, have you run into the myth, the women aren't as funny as men myth? As you, I, I imagine <laughs> that's all over the place, isn't it? Of course I have. You know, I listen to these guys on their podcast talking about how comedy's dead and everyone's so sensitive in this time oh. and they can't say anything. And I'm like, maybe you're just a dick and you're not very funny. <laughs> Have you ever considered <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah. Maybe you're just really bad at your job. God, no, yeah. I mean, women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I think women in general. What's interesting is that comedy club audiences are a lot of females. They bring their husbands or boyfriends to the shows. And so people forget that. Um, and so women have a the, the capability to really kind of blow out in these industry and they have been like, you've got Eliza Schlesinger and, you know, you've got, you know, Wanda Sykes, who's always been huge, but now she's out of the closet and she's able to be herself and political and massive. Um, so many of my friends, Aaron Foley, Jessica Kirsten, Fortune Feimster, all these women that are headlining comedy clubs and doing sitcoms and really sort of breaking that glass ceiling that men have built, yeah. I think more than ever are showing that women aren't just as funny women are often funnier than men because we have to be smarter than they are. Mm -hmm. We can't do the low hanging jokes. We don't want to do the low hanging jokes because often they're very disparaging to us. Yeah. And in fact, you know what? That's one of the many reasons why I admire Stephanie Miller because she has made her career as a funny person in broadcasting, which is, kind of a like a bastard stepchild of <laughs> of stand-up comedy it's kind of there's kind of a venn diagram overlap between those two universes and uh and she's uh, been able to champion and power her way through uh that minefield of misogyny and false assumptions about funny women uh it's kind yeah. of an amazing thing to observe and you know one of the things uh, that i talk about with jen kirkman another character from the stephanie miller show extended cinematic universe is going back to what you were saying Brilliant. about yeah about cancel culture and about how uh, male comics are doing an awful lot of whining right now um which to me yeah. sounds like it's coming and, and this is something that jen and i talk about all the time it's coming from a place of Pure entitlement. I look, for example, at uh, Bill Maher, who likes to deal in controversial topics, but gets all bent out of shape when he actually stirs up controversy. The free speech door swings both ways. Stand-up comics have free speech, but the audience also has free speech, right? Well, the other thing is, you know, I think you have these people that think they're so woke and evolved, and so they've convinced themselves that they are. So when they say things that are disparaging or the N-word comes out of their mouth, they somehow justify it because they think they're one of the good ones. Yeah. Well, you know what? You can stay in that bubble and tell yourself that, but the audience is watching this in live time, and you know what? They're going to have something to say about it. They will. You just don't You don't get I to say whatever think, the hell you want with impunity. Exactly, and I also think that, uh, you know, women in general, I know Samantha B has said stuff uh, that maybe crossed the line or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think this happens more often than not. We can be a little more introspective and apologize because that's sort of our nature. I think, you know, Bill Maher would rather put his, you know, dig his heels in and push back and even take it a step further instead of being like, yeah, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't have said that. That came yeah. out wrong or it's not really what I believe. I got caught up in the moment, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, but yeah, there you can't just say what you want with impunity when everyone, the whininess, oh, the First Amendment, blah, 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 blah. Some things just need, you know, they're just not funny. And I think that's the, what people are forgetting is yeah. just because you think it's comedy doesn't mean it's funny. Exactly, exactly. Well, Dana, this has been an absolute privilege. Thank you so much for being on the show today. You need to be on MSNBC. Dana, have you done any cable news? I haven't. I, what happened with MSNBC, I was supposed to actually do, you're going to love this. I was booked to be on the round table with Donnie Deutsch and then the entire show got taken off the air. (laughs) That is, that is the way (laughs) everything works in television. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, as soon as you get like a, a, like a pilot project in the works at a network, the entire regime changes at the network and you end up standing there going, where'd everybody go? It always that yeah, kind of crap so always happens. I had been in touch with the uh, the head of booking, who's a great guy over at MSNBC, and you know he kept wanting to try and get me in, get me in, get me in, and then the impeachment happened, 
and then coronavirus happened. And listen, if I was a specialist in coronavirus or if I was a specialist in, you know, Chinese trade deals, I'd be on there in a second. But yeah. he hasn't quite been able to find a place for me. But I, I'm not going to give up because I think I I think I would do quite well, actually, on some of the panels on MSNBC. Well, we need more of you on MSNBC, more of Stephanie Miller on MSNBC, too. And and hopefully yeah. they will uh, give you guys a call back. That absolutely needs to happen. So how can people follow Thanks. your work, Dana, the the standard last question in any podcast interview. I love it, and I yeah. appreciate it. Normally at this time, I would ramble off the dozen dates I have coming up, but my entire <laughs> calendar has been cleared. Oh, man. Um, listen, though, I would love if people followed me on social media. I'm very active right now. Uh, Twitter, all of my handles are the same. It's just at DG, so my initials, DG Comedy, and that's on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, I'm going to be putting out my rooftop rants. Hopefully the first one is going to drop either at the end of this week or on Monday. I hope people watch those and share those and just keep supporting the artists that you love right now. We need that more than ever. So, you know, when people are like, how can we support you? When we put content out there, a tweet, uh, a post, just share it. That's, that's right now our way of knowing that you appreciate it and you want to help us stay alive during this time and thrive. So Bob, I adore you. I think you're absolutely brilliant. Um, and Kim's a lucky guy. <laughs> Kim's a lucky guy. I'll say that. And I'm Thank here. You. This come from a lesbian. Kim, you're a lucky guy. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to the next episode of Out in Left Field on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Ding, ding, ding. And uh, we'll see you there, Dana. Thank you so much. Take care and be safe, Bob. Stay healthy. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. 